Hey, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, if you are new with us, we're so glad that you're joining us. And um, we are going to jump right into our service and worship on Jesus and love on him this morning. And our response of loving on him is because the Bible says that he first loved us. So will you stand with me this morning as we pray and welcome the Holy Spirit to come and move among us. I love how the Holy Spirit, he moves in us individually. But when we come together um, with a group of us, uh, he wants to move among us. And he wants to display his goodness among us. So, Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning. Lord, thank you for your kindness, Lord God, that has caused us to think about you in a new way. Lord, we just thank you that your love is limitless, Lord. Your tender mercies, Lord, are limitless, Lord. This morning, God, we've come to turn our heart's affection on you, towards you, Lord, and to shut out the distractions and all the noise that can be going on. And so, Lord, this morning, would you just move among us by your spirit this morning? Because your desire is to draw us near to you. As we come close to you, Lord, there's always a closeness that's more and more of who you are in us and through us, Lord. Father God, we bless you. We thank you this morning that we have come together to hear and to see, Lord, your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together, y'all.
sing to him this morning. He inhabits your praises. Come on, sing to him this morning.
Thank you for giving us just the privilege to be your children. Even though we we didn't deserve it. Thank you for being a, a good and loving father. The perfect example of love for us, God. Thank you that you are always for us and not against us. Thank you for being the God who defines our circumstances and are not defined by them. Jesus, we love you. We love you, and we just want to continue to worship even after this this moment into our sermon, into our, our life. Let it just be just a living sacrifice of worship to you, God. Thank you, Father. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for uh, our worship team just just leading us through a sweet time with our Father. Uh, This morning, we want to have communion. Uh, it's something that that you know I, I grew up do, doing not in not in this house. Um, when I grew up, it, it always seemed like it was just a reminder of how I messed up. Um, but that's not the intention at all behind this. Uh, we're we're meant to remember how how much we need God. But that if we stay in that 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 place of of just wallowing in our our sin and just realizing how we're not perfect. We're allowing the enemy to really uh, manipulate what this is meant to be. This, this is meant to be not only just a recognition of what Christ did for us on the cross, but it's, it's also a celebration of his victory. Not, not just over uh, our, our souls, just our, our, our lives that, that we have eternally with him, but also victory over our circumstances because of what he did on the cross. So this morning we want to just have communion together. And we believe in uh, the law of love, and that's simply put, all are welcome to come and partake. That, that's something between you and God. If you, you feel like you don't need to, that's all good. Uh, families, uh, we leave it up to you to decide whether or not you want your kids to partake. Um, so, yeah, we leave that totally up to you. Um, amen. All right. That's my daughter. <laughs> Um, so we're just going to um, open up, open up in prayer, 
uh, and then we're going to read some scriptures. And how we're going to how we're going to do this? Actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's what happens when I don't have my phone out in front of me. Um, how this is going to work, just practically speaking, uh, we'll just invite everyone to come down the aisles. The, uh, the offerings are right up here uh, in the uh, containers and on the table here. So feel free to come down the side and and go back to your seat. Once everyone's back to their seat, then I'll pray. And then we'll uh, read through scriptures and we'll take communion together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, Thank you for just being such a good father, for moving heaven and earth for us, for sending your son who who gave everything, whose body was broken, for a mistake that was not his own, it was ours. Our mistake is is what caused it. Thank you, Jesus, for, for the blood that you shed for us, that not only, it didn't just cover our sin, it completely washed it away. And because of that, we are always, as children, in perfect relationship with you, God. That we we can always run to you. We don't need to to walk in with any shame or guilt. That's that's something that's no longer for ours to bear. Thank you through the blood of Jesus that that we we don't have to to worry about about death and sickness. That's That's all paid for on the cross, God. It's through the power of your blood and your name that we can say to sickness, no, that's not, that's not what God has for me in my life. That we can look in our circumstances and say, that, no, I have a good father who, <laughs> who's in control. So, Jesus, we want to remember this morning just the goodness that you have for us, God. We love you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, uh, Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I love communion because it is the constant reminder of how much Jesus loves me, and um, he was perfect in all of his ways. And so this morning, because of the gift of righteousness, you are as clean and as pure as Jesus. And I hope you can wrap your head around that this morning, because it's the gift that he's given you. And so when the enemy comes and tells you a different story, 
That's what you need to believe. It's not about how you feel. It's what you believe in the finished work of Jesus. So amen. Um, This morning, if you're new with us, thank you for being a guest and choosing to worship with us. And um, we'd love for you to go to DathanCF.com and do a connection card so we can get to find out a little bit more about you and your story. And um, after service, we usually either gather in the back or over on the side out with coffee. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more. And um, this, this fall, we're going to be doing the community groups um, that we're going to be offering. We're going to do Gifts of the Spirit. And um, it is one of my most favorite things because it is a weaponry that is beyond our own ability and our own means. It is something that God gave to his church. The Holy Spirit moves and lives and breathes and moves among us for the kingdom purposes to be accomplished. And so if you have, I don't, I don't it does not matter what background you're from. It doesn't matter what background you're from because you have been given weapons of warfare through the power of the Holy Spirit to influence the world around you. So if you would like to grow in those gifts and know more about them and understand them more and how they impact the world around you, we are offering them at three different times. You can go right now and sign up online at dothancf.com and our um, community groups and find out a little bit more about that information. I'd love for us to move together as a family and as a church body in God's design for actually accomplishing his purposes together. So go online and look those up and um, come be a part of that because there's going to be some fun stuff. So don't be scared. It's a safe environment to learn and grow because, um, you know, when we were all babies, we didn't come out of the womb running. We, like, actually had some process there. So this is a safe process for you to grow and learn in the gifts of the Spirit. So we look forward to you being a part of that with us. There's multiple ways to give in line up at the box or online, either one. And then um, for ladies, we would love for you to mark your calendar for September the 15th. We are going to be having our fall launch of just our ladies' ministry and just our ladies coming together. If you're new here and you're like, I don't know very many ladies. Well, this is the time for you to come, get to know one another, um, be equipped, um, and be empowered with some of the things and the truths of, the, of how the Lord has designed you and um, how we walk together and live this life um, in community. So our kids are dismissed, our youth are dismissed, and we're going to have a great morning with our message this morning with um, Dave, and he'll be right back. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we've been doing a series called First Things First, and I start out with a scripture that says, if you seek the kingdom first, everything you have need of, God will make sure that you get it. And he makes this comment. It's really interesting. He said, um, these are all the things the pagans search for and chase after, right? And so um, we've been talking about how sometimes the, the kingdom is kind of like an upside-down kingdom. There are things that we assume. There are things that we believe. There are things that we learn in life um, that if we're not careful, we think that that's the way the kingdom works, but maybe that's just the way the world works, or maybe that's the way religion works. Uh, maybe that's the way your brain works. There's a lot of things going on. But there's a difference between the natural world and the supernatural world. Um, I share this all the time. Um, I'm, I'm a thinker. That God made me a thinker. That doesn't mean I'm really, like, like really smart. It just means I tend to internalize things and think about them a lot. And I was always bothered by, by the, the supernatural because I had this mindset that the supernatural meant against nature. And it felt like a conflict all the time. And, and what's, you know, I, I like words, and so it, when you study words, super means above. So supernatural doesn't mean against nature, it means above nature. And, and when you understand the kingdom, that's kind of what you're looking at. You're looking at, as you seek the kingdom, what you're doing is you're seeking 
something that came before this world, a world that came before this world, understanding that came before this world. Um, everything in the kingdom came before this world, right? And when you understand that, you kind of see your place in it because so often what we've, what we've done in, in the nature of sin, it's, called us, it's, it's caused us to think as if we are the center of the universe, right? Like it's always interesting and doing the, the baby handoff uh, when <laughs> David Kelly right, you know, coming back down and Karen handed the baby. Um, w- w- that Gemma, just so you know, if you, if you want to have fun, Gemma is a delightful baby. She's so much fun. She's got so much, you know, energy and so much uh, animation, all those things. It's amazing. But recently she learned the word no, right, Dave? <laughs> and when, when toddlers learn the, world, the word no, like, like they've discovered power. They had no idea how much power they have as little kids. And we all were there. You know, at some point we're like, hey, I have a will of my own, who knew? And now what am I gonna do with the will, of, you know, the will that I have? And so obviously in, in, in sin, all that really means is I've just made the whole world revolve around me. I've made me the center of the universe. And, and when you begin to understand the kingdom, you begin to understand um, that the world um, doesn't actually revolve around you. It's actually there was someone here before you got here, right? And so, so when, you, when we're talking about first things first, part of this is going into scripture and letting the Bible transform our thinking. There, you know, when we read truth in Scripture, sometimes it'll challenge the way we've been living. Sometimes it'll challenge what we think about God. There's just lots of things that, that can come from that. But what I've discovered is, is when, I, when I read Scripture and I, and I recognize the truth behind Scripture, and I'm, just, I'm not talking about just blind faith. That's not Christian faith by any stretch of the imagination. But when you begin to understand the truth of Scripture, you understand God's truth and God's kingdom, and you begin to live accordingly, everything in your life begins to turn around. And it's a phenomenal thing to watch people go, um, you know, seeking first the kingdom is actually how I get all the things that I was chasing after. Like, you know, it's like you go after the world, and we've seen this many times. Uh, we were in, in uh, Atlanta for about three or four years. We knew, knew a lot of people who were, who were trying to become successful, entrepreneurs, you know, they were in corporations. Um, some of them worked in some really, you know, highfalutin accounting agencies in downtown Atlanta that were worldwide. And they had high paying jobs. They had really nice homes in all these places. And they had the same trouble and the same challenges in their life with all their money and all their wealth and all their affluence and all of their success that people who were living in poverty had. A little bit different. <laughs> they had better cars, better houses, right? But being miserable in air conditioning is still being miserable. All right, And so that's what we discovered, that the thing that's going on really is the thing that's inside of our heart. Who's going to, be the, who's going to sit on the, king, on the throne of our heart? Who's going to be the king of our life? And so as we begin to discover the, the, the kingdom, we begin to realize that maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Like I remember that was one of my prayers, Lord. I'm like, Lord, I've tried everything else. May as well give you a shot because it uh, turns out I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and maybe you do. So um, Karen and I were watching a movie not too long ago. And I'm pretty sure it was... Uh, um, it was one of those movies where it's the same plot, um, small town girl goes to the city, becomes successful, it doesn't mean everything she thought it was, she's driving somewhere and her car breaks down or she goes through a fence or a cow, you know, it's the same hallmark, it's exactly the same plot, sometimes it's Christmas, sometimes it's not Christmas, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So we were watching this movie <laughs> and, and, and she was in the dilemma where she had this really successful city guy, and he was, he was a good guy for the most part. He was very successful. And she had this, you know, country guy who was really good looking, you know, and, and rugged good look, you know, not that 
city slicker, good looking, you know, the, the, the small town kind of good looking, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, <laughs> she's trying to decide which one, of them, which one of them she really wants. And so anyway, she's in the, in, in the rich, successful guy's apartment in Manhattan. And um, she pulls the fire alarm and then watches this guy um, to see what is the most valuable thing in his life, right? So this is interesting. So he runs, first of all, to his laptop, <laughs> right? Grabs his laptop because that's the most valuable. And then he's, he's, he, he sees something on the, on the shelf, um, some glasses that are worth a lot of money. So he grabs them. And then there's a painting and he grabs the painting. And so he, he grabs a bunch of things that, you know, and he hadn't even really thought it through, but his laptop was first. And then he runs out the door and she's left standing there. Right? Like, not only did he not grab her, he didn't, even, he didn't even care whether she made it out. Like, that's kind of the last thing on his list. And so she realizes what was really valuable to him. But what was really interesting is through the whole movie, he was saying that she was the most valuable thing to him. You're the most valuable thing in this world. I put you above everything else. And the moment he went into a crisis, the alarm sounded and fire's coming. He grabs the things that are important and goes away. There's another, uh, there's a meme online. I don't know if you've seen it. And it's uh, uh, somebody's, it's a lady, she's cooking in the kitchen and uh, the kitchen, for whatever reason, has a glass door on it. And uh, she's cooking in the kitchen, and a fire erupts. And the husband grabs the child under his arm, runs out the door, and then slams the door behind him. And you can see the woman turn around and look like, well, he loves the kid, but not so much me, right? And he runs out, and it just kind of where the meme ends. And again, it goes back to when crisis hits, so often what we do is we discover what's really valuable. So, so what's valuable to you? Um, there's a song, if you've been around for a little while, you've heard this song. Um, I'll, let me read the lyrics. And so if you're under probably 40, then maybe you don't get this, but I'll, you can Google it and find it. So let me start with, my child arrived just the other day. <laughs> he came to the world in the usual way, but there were place, uh, planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away and he was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, dad. I'm going to be like you. Anybody remember it? All the young people are like, what are you talking? Is that a rap? No, it is not. Just so you know. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. So that's the first verse in, in the chorus. The last verse is incredibly telling. I've long, long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. <laughs> so what is that, what's that about? It, you know, I, I remember my dad grew up in, in abject poverty in the Appalachian Mountains. And so, you know, I made the comment about learning to tie my shoes. And when I called him about it, he's like, I, just, I was just glad to have shoes, Dave. So shut up. Get over it. You know, move on. <laughs> Quit your complaining, right? So, so my dad, when, he, when he, he worked manual labor jobs most of his life, and he would get up early and he'd come home late, and he worked hard. I, that's one thing I learned from my dad is the, a, a really, really strong work ethic. Um, but my dad was also passive, so I love him to death. He's an amazing man in a million different ways. But there's some things that I did not learn from him. Some things about my heavenly father that I had to learn from somewhere else. I had to learn from scripture and learn from truth. So the representation sometimes that we all grow up in is we grow up with family values. We grow up with cultural values. Our nation has values. You know, if you're, if, if, if our time has values, what was valuable in the 1950s may not be valuable now. 
And so those things shift and change. And, and sometimes they're, you know, one value is above another. But going back to Scripture, there are some values that are just timeless. There are some values that are greater than others. There are some values that should be above all those values, right? And so we kind of get that. And we hear songs like this, and it grabs our heart, especially if we've been guilty of it. That, you know, I've cared so much, you know, I came from this mindset that I had nothing, and I'm not going to do that to my kids. So in my great love for them, I'm going to make sure that they have the things that I never had, right? It's a classic, classic thing that, that husbands do, fathers do um, for their kids. And then somewhere along the line, you realize you're spending 80 hours, at, you know, maybe not here, but in Atlanta, this was pretty common, 60 to 80-hour eight hour work weeks. And so your kids have all kinds of nice things, but they don't have you. And hopefully you realize that before you go, because, you know, the old adage is nobody, nobody dies and wishes they spent more time at the office, <laughs> right? So, so the classic case is, like, we, we, we say we love our kids. We say, we say that this is the most valuable thing. But if I'm honest, when I look into my checkbook, I, it's not hard to find out what's really, really valuable, right? Um, and when crisis comes and the fire alarm is pulled, what do you run to first, right? So Jesus goes after this in a scripture that we're all familiar with. This is Matthew 6. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21 is really, really interesting. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, that's backwards, right? That last line, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What it should say is, where your heart is, is where your treasure will be, right? That's what it ought to say, because that makes more sense. It's like, well, my, you know, this is really valuable in my heart, so therefore I, I've made it my treasure. But, it's, but Jesus says something different. He challenges us and he says, it's actually the opposite. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And then he tells a whole bunch of parables. Like one of them he tells about a man finds, um, you know, finds a treasure in a field and immediately goes and sells everything he has and he comes and buys the whole field. Like, like part of it is, it's like if that, if that one treasure was in the field, Imagine what I'll find as I keep digging. You know, that's kind of the, part of the point. But, but, the, but the big picture is all that stuff that I thought was so valuable, man, when I really discovered where the treasure is, I made sure that's where I put my heart. So he discovers a treasure, he sees the value of the treasure, and then he changes his world around him to make his heart go where the treasure is, right? And so it's something we, that, that if we're not careful, we get that wrong way around. And so Jesus you know, I've been talking about first things first. And so there are some things that, again, that seem, that, the Scripture puts it this way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And so, so the picture is there are ways that seem right to your culture and to your world and the way you grew up and your value system, all these things. And part of becoming, you know, part of the kingdom is all of that gets checked against higher values. It gets checked against something that's greater and has more importance and more value. So part of this story is, if you go back and read it, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus was, he was busy rebuking the Pharisees, which seemed to be a hobby of his, right? And there was plenty of Pharisees to rebuke, and they needed rebuking, right? So he was going about doing that. And he would, he would expose their hypocrisy, like the way they prayed. They would pray out loud and really loud on the corner where everybody could see them. And Jesus said, they have their reward. 
In other words, if you pray in, in quiet, you pray in private, and you're going after those things with God, nobody's paying attention to your King James prayer. How accurate it is, how, they don't, nobody even knows. It's just you and the Lord, right? And so Jesus is indicating, he said, the Pharisees, they're praying, and, and, and they sound really amazing and religious because it's really practiced and they're good at it, but how valuable is that prayer really? What's the real value? Is it the prayer or is it the heart behind the prayer, right? And Jesus is saying with the Pharisees, their reward is they want to be seen and acknowledged by people. They want to be thought well of. They want, to, they want success. It goes on and on. He, he goes after them um, when, when they're fasting. He says, <laughs> I love this. He goes, they, they exaggerate their pain in fasting. So when they fast, they put sackcloth and ashes, and so they make sure that everybody knows they're fasting, right? You know, I'm, I'm fasting today. Like, and it, here's how you know you're doing it right. You fast, and you don't tell anybody, and you don't, you know, you actually still take a shower, even though you don't feel like taking a shower because you're so hungry. And then this is how you know you're doing it right. Somebody always invites you to like a steak dinner or, you know, it's just, it's your favorite food and your, or your wife goes, hey, hon, I made your favorite meal. And you're like, ah, right? And you're like, but it's spaghetti. So it's going to be really good after I quit fasting, right? Because it's only going to get better. But that's how you know. Part of it is, is which reward are you looking for in your fasting? I mean, even the Bible goes after this. This is kind of a side note, but it's for free. Um, when you're fasting, are most of us think we're trying to get God to change his mind, right? Like a lot of people, that's their mentality for fasting is, you know, God, I have this big desire. You obviously aren't listening. So I'm going to get your attention by fasting and praying. You know, I'm going to look really, I'm going to look the part and I'm going to be, I'm going to feel really bad. And, you know, in and, and my anguish, you'll see that and you'll, you'll change it. And, and so that we think by, by the outward display, somehow God's going to, it's, it's going to get God's attention. He's going to change his mind and all those things. And obviously, we know that that's not true. So Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they're fasting. They're trying to get God to do something that God's unwilling to do. And he, he goes after that in several ways. In one place in the Old Testament in Israel, he goes after it. And he says, he says you're fasting and you're praying and you're, and you're making all these, you know, uh, you're doing all these things to look the part. Meanwhile, you're cheating people out of their wages, right? So you're doing, your life is is. This is your real value system, but this is what you're saying it is, right? We had, we had a family in our church in, in England when we first got saved, and uh, they had, uh, it was a Cuban man who'd come from Cuba. He, he got out of there before the communists took over, and he was actually in, uh, uh, immigrated to England. He married an, an English lady, and that was an interesting, interesting combination. You know, this Cuban man full of passion, you know. And, and so anyway, they, they seemed really nice. They had a couple of kids. And uh, they seemed really nice, um, but we found out much later, because at some point, we, we moved back to the States, and one of their kids was college age, and she actually came, we actually created a way for her to come back with us, host her, so that she could go to college in the States. And so, just to kind of paint the picture, Karen and I, we'd been back for a while, for a couple of months, living in a house, you know, kind of making plans and, and all that. And she's living in one of the bedrooms, and one morning she comes in, and she's just distraught. And she, she had this massive hair. Like, she, <laughs> something about the Cuban and the English came together and made the biggest hair you've ever seen in your life. It was gorgeous, beautiful, but it took her like four hours to get ready in the morning. I mean, she just had some big hair. And she came in, and she was looking rough, and it was all disheveled. And she comes in, and she goes, what is wrong with you guys? And Karen and I were like having coffee, like, what in the whole world are you talking about? She's like, I don't understand 
And we're like, why are you freaking out? She goes, when are you guys going to really be honest with each other? We're like, so you're single giving us marriage advice? What are you talking about, right? And we found out later she was on pins and needles because Karen and I had not exploded at each other in anger in private the way her mom and dad always did. So we found out that the, the thing we saw at church on Sunday morning was not at all what they were living at their house. To the point where Chantel was her name. The big name goes with her big hair. And so she was amazing, still amazing. So Chantel was like, my, my parents would throw plates at each other. They would scream obscenities at each other. I mean, it was just a horrible life. And we had no idea. And so obviously she needed therapy and Jesus and <laughs> not in that order. And so, and she got help and she discovered that her value system at home actually wasn't reality and that it could be something totally different. And so Jesus is painting the picture about religion, what people think God is like and rebuking the Pharisees and what he's actually like, right? The value system is different. So he goes after it about treasures. He talks about treasures and how he does. So he's contrasting these treasures and he's, he's basically saying, you're going to choose where you put your treasure. You are building up treasure. You are investing in something that is going to have some value. Are you investing in something that's going to pay off here in this world? Or are you investing in something that's going to pay off in another world, a different world? Not, and it, we always think of it as then, right? You know, one day when I get to heaven. But, but heaven and earth coexist at the same time. They're just in different realms, for lack of a better term. So you're not investing in future heaven, right? Although that's true. You're investing in now heaven, right? So tweet that out. Invest in now heaven. Like, what the heck does that even mean? You have to watch the sermon to find out, right? So, so what does that look like? So Jesus is going after this. He's saying, you are going to put your treasure somewhere. You're going to invest. It's not like you can opt out. Like, you know what? I've decided I'm not playing the religious game, so I will not be religious. You have become more religious about not being religious than religious people are about being religious. Had a guy in Bible college he would never wear a tie. He said, ties are of the devil. I'm never wearing one. And I think he's right, but I'm just saying he, that he was very adamant about it. And one day I had a conversation with him about it. And I said, what are you going to do if someone invites you to church and their culture is you wear a tie while you preach? Are you going to just not go preach? Are you not going to go share the gospel, share the kingdom because of your admonition your, in your own heart, the value that you have now, your value of not being religious has become your religion, right? And, and be, people do this all the time. Jesus said things like, um, he's like he talks about you, you, would go, you would go after, how do you put it? You would uh, move heaven and earth to make a proselyte, to make a convert, and then turn him into twice the son of hell that you are. Like he said that to pastors. That's not nice, Right? Don't invite Jesus to your pastor's conference. He's going to make a mess, right? But why? Because he was, Jesus was always after the authentic and the real. Always. And, and you see, we've experienced this in church. We were taught in Bible college. I'll never forget this. They said, whatever you do, do not create relationship with the people you're pastoring. And I'm like, that seems wrong from everything I've read in the Bible, Right? So I'm waiting, and they, tell me, and they tell us why. And the answer was that they won't see you the same way, and so they won't respond to the kingdom the same way. They won't respond to the gospel the same way. And me, all being biblically literate, said, uh, but that's not what Paul did. No, what Jesus did. Jesus invited these guys to come and camp. With, you want to find out if somebody's a real Christian? Go camping with them. 
And Jesus invited him on camp, constant camping trips to find out who was a Christian or not, right? So, so that's, but, but that's my point, is these people had a, an outward display, which was a value system that they were investing in, big time. And Jesus was saying, there's something, there's something better. There's a, there's a better way. And so he went after it in a big way. And uh, there's an interesting commentary. Um, I don't, this is not a commentary I look into all the time, but it's an interesting one. It's a guy named Ellicott, um, uh, Charles Ellicott. He's from the 1700s, very conservative. Anyway, he, he, this is what he said about that particular passage, Matthew 6, 21. He said, men may try to persuade themselves that they will have a treasure on earth and a treasure in heaven. Let me just pause right there for a second. Because we all know people who their treasure is here, right? Like they, they like nice cars or, you know, we had a guy and uh, we were stationed in England with, he was a player. Um, he had an incredible, charismatic, charming personality. Um, he wasn't that good looking, which was interesting, but like he was sleeping with women left and right. Like he was the hero of all the single guys in, in the, you know, like he's abusing women, but guys, that, you know, they're young. They didn't care. They were worldly. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Conquest, right? Yeah, he's our hero. And he was empty inside. And eventually he got saved. He got called into the ministry the same time that we did. And now he pastors his church up in New England and he's, he quit doing that. I just want to clear that part of it up. <laughs> like, like long, long time ago. I'm not, like, not just recently he quit doing that. I'm just saying. His heart and his life was tra- transformed because he was chasing after something he thought was going to satisfy him. And it did temporarily or momentarily. But then guilt and shame and condemnation and all the reasons why he was chasing after acceptance and all these different things. You know, he sorted that stuff out when he, did, he discovered Jesus. Because Jesus challenged him and said, hey, where do, you want you, where do you want to build your treasure? Right? And so Ellicott says, you can't actually have it both ways. You can't have a treasure here and a treasure in heaven. And then he talks about why. It's really fascinating. He says, in the long run, one or the other will assert its claim to be the treasure right? And will claim the no longer divided allegiance of the heart. So here's the brutal reality, because I've watched this over the years. Our pastor in Bible college, he only had one sermon. He preached it a hundred thousand different ways. He was very creative, amazing guy. But he only had one sermon. His one sermon was, um, you have the, the value of the world in a bag in one hand, and the value of the kingdom in, in a bag in the other hand, and you need to let go of this one with that hand and grab hold of this, the kingdom with both hands. It's the only sermon he ever preached. He just preached it, you know, 10,000 different ways. And, and so the same thing's true. He's, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you think you can have it both ways. You, could, you think you can have your cake and eat it too, and, and you can't. And so the discovery you find is the more you pursue it and the more you try to divide your allegiance, at some point, even if, it's, if you stay in church world, you, you don't have God and your your stuff too, right? What you have is you have religion and your stuff too. You lose the kingdom in the sense that you have no allegiance to the kingdom because the moment this gets threatened, you let this go. This is how we know. Look, when things get tough, my my, uh, friend of mine, he was my mentor, one of my mentors in early days of ministry, he preached a sermon called Chocolate Soldier. It's one of the best sermons I ever heard. And the, concept, the content of the, the message was simple. He said, the first time you encounter trouble, you melt from the heat. And he said, and I'm challenging you to change your substance. <laughs> I was like, that's a good message, right? And the whole idea was when you realize it, and I've shared this recently, the, there's a scripture that, that drives me crazy. It's in Proverbs. It says, if you fail in the day of, the, uh, of adversity, your strength is weak. 
And I'm like, ah, I don't like that scripture because it's not helping me. Like, it's just telling me what happened, <laughs> right? But, but part of telling me what happened is actually going to help me if I will admit actually what happened, see? But so often we're like, yeah, that's not true. And then you fail into the day of adversity again. Yeah, but that's not true. My strength is fine, <laughs> all right? Remember, uh, there's a strong guy in the Bible who found out this the hard way, right? <laughs> Samson, right? He's like, I'm, I'm going to rise up like every other time and I'm going to... But what happens is there's this, there's this moment where all of a sudden you realize that all the values that you've invested in, you've gone broke. And the values are no longer applicable. So Jesus said it, again, preached that first message. He said, um, your father knows you have need of these things. These are the things the pagans chase after, right? And talk, clothing and, you know, status and, and, and all that and food and, and security and safety. The pagans are chasing after this. And he says, you don't be like them. He said, if you will seek the kingdom, what they are chasing, I will give you for free. That's the kingdom. But it is it's antagonistic to our thinking, our natural thinking, right? So here's an interesting question. What would you say God's treasure is? Like one way we find out about your treasure is you guys just give me your checkbook. Make sure there's some checks in it because I'm going to write some checks to the church in, while I have it. But, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but I can run down the list, and you could do the same with me and find out what's, what's really, really valuable. Not what I say is valuable, but what actually is because I'm spending real money on it. Right? We all know this. And so what does, for lack of a better phrase, what does God spend real money on? <laughs> right? What's his, is it being right? I've heard this before. God's right and everybody else is wrong. That's true. Right? God is 100% holy, true, righteous. I went through this whole list of the attributes of God when I was studying this, and it's so fascinating in how they, they relate to one another. But one of those, one of those you know, ab, uh, it's not even abstract, it's pure. One of the attributes of God is um, he's 100% holy. He cannot sin. It is not within his power or existence to sin. He is holy, only holy. He can never be anything else. So when you come to him, right, you have to come perfectly. Like we all know this. So what was the law all about? So it's just to push back into the old covenant, symbolism. Um, what was the law about? The law was about we all think we're okay, and God's going to help us understand we're not. So he's like, so here's 10 commandments. I want you to do these. If you do these, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these, you'll be cursed. And so it's actually 630-something commandments, but we'll just go with the 10. And so how, how are you guys doing with that? Like, like most people are like, I totally believe in the Ten Commandments. And I'm like, name one. They're like, ah, boy, that's, ooh. <laughs> Maybe put God first. That might be one that you could, you know, come up with. Yeah, can't, don't, don't murder people. Yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't want your, your, your neighbor's wife. I mean, so they start coming up. And so I'm, I'm like, what about the one that says, you know, talks about don't murder your brother. And then Jesus comes along in, in Matthew 6, right around where this passage came from. And he's like, um, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the people who are doing it for show, right? In other words, it's not real righteousness, but unless it gets better, bigger than that, you won't even see the kingdom. Jesus said it this way. He said, you've heard it say that if you murder someone, you know, you've broken the commandment. He said, but if you hate someone without cause, you've broken it. What about women? If you sleep with someone, yeah, that you shouldn't, oh, yeah, okay, you know, fornication or adultery, really bad, shouldn't do that, right? But if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, 
So I love it when people, I have this conversation with people and they feel like they're okay. And I'm like, how you doing? They're like, whoo, ha. Especially after that lust thing when you're talking to guys. It's like, I'm pretty sure I violated that one once or twice, right? It's like, so how you doing? And I just say the simple thing. I'm like, I don't think it's going to go well with you on judgment day. <laughs> All of a sudden you feel, you begin to feel the weight of, uh-oh, I thought I was okay when maybe I'm not okay, right? So that's the point behind the law. But then the danger is, then we look at this and we think that that value system of the law is actually what can save us. And, and Paul goes through all kinds of different things in Romans and Galatians, basically almost every book he wrote, he goes after this and says, all of the rule following that you ever do is never enough to save you. All it's ever going to do is, if you're honest, it's to show you that you cannot save yourself, that you are not good enough to come into the holy presence of a holy, pure, righteous God. So the only thing that's left for you is judgment or something else. And so the gospel we talked about is the good news. Not good advice, do better. That's advice, that's not news. The good news is you couldn't do it. Jesus came, did it for you. And if you believe in him and you submit yourself to him, then all of your sin is washed away and, and you've been, and it, falls on Jesus, and then he gives you the gift of righteousness because he lived it perfectly. And we know this. This is the story of the gospel. And so then we're like, yeah, I believe that, except for now I'm going to keep trying to please God even after God's already pleased. So we get caught up into, you know, um, we bought into this mindset that somehow when I miss it, God's angry with me now and he's going to throw me out or he's mad with me or he's turned his face away from me. Somehow I've lost favor with God that, you know, until I get it right. And so we fall into this pattern of guilt, shame, and condemnation, this low-grade fever that never goes away. Because we've built into a value system that is not God's value system, or only half of the revelation, the old covenant, and we haven't really studied the new covenant to find out whether it's true. So is righteousness God's treasure? Part of it is, in, in one sense, the answer is yes, because it's who he is. Right? It's not what he does. We, we think of righteousness as righteous acts, right? But God is righteous because he is righteous. Remember when, when, when Moses said, who do I say sent me when I go see the biggest, you know, king of the universe kind of guy? <laughs> and he says, tell him, I am that I am sent you. And I'm like, I don't know if that's even grammatically correct. And the Pharaoh's really not going to think that's funny, right? So, but he goes and then God demonstrates his power. But what was God saying? He's like, I am that I am. You can, you can try to explain me if you want, or you can just introduce me, and I'll just be who I am, and people will see it, right? So he is who he is, and he is holy, and we are not holy. And when we try to come into his presence, there is no place for unholy in the holy. So now we're in a dilemma, and all of this, the gospel comes in, so we see this beautiful progression, right? And then now all of a sudden, something's been made available that we, didn't, we weren't aware it was available, and if you see the value of the good news, what Jesus did on the cross, if you see that value, Jesus is telling the story before the cross of when you find a treasure in a field, sell everything you have and buy the field so you get the treasure, right? So now let's switch gears. This is a scripture found in Revelation 13, 8. And it's a very, very interesting scripture for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is, it's the only time in the Bible this phrase is here. It's, it's somehow kind of hidden or submerged in this 
context of the beast in the book of Revelation. And the Bible says if you read the book of Revelation, there's a blessing for you. Don't add or take away, so be careful with your interpretation of the book of Revelation, right? Don't do that. But in this book of Revelation of who Jesus is, this is what he says, 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. He's talking about the beast in the context. Whose names have not been written in the book of life. So there's a book of life where your name gets written or not, right? So it's either in there or it's not. And so it'd be a good, way to, it'd be a good thing to find out how you get your book, um, I mean, how you get your name in the book of life, right? So talking about first things first, I was singing one time in a worship service when I first started leading worship. And there was a song that I sang and I got the words backwards. And the song was um, supposed to go, my name's in the book of life and my sins have been washed away. And what I sang was my sins in the book of life and my name's been washed away. And everybody was like into it and they sang it with me and then they're like, we're all going to hell. Dave just led us, right? So it's really important that you get it the right way, right? First things have to come first. It's the way of the kingdom. So, so now, when, if I ask you, what was the first sacrifice in the Bible? Some of you guys will go, well, Cain and Abel, you know, he brought, they both brought sacrifices. And, and you can actually back up again to Genesis, a little bit further back in Genesis, and find out that the first sacrifice in the Garden of Eden was when Adam and Eve sinned. There was a, it's kind of mentioned, again, hidden, mentioned that they, they were clothed now because they were naked. They were clothed with animal skins. The inference is the animals weren't still in them, right? So we're kind of, we're like, oh, blood had to be shed, right? And the law of first mention in Scripture is just a hermeneutic way. It's a way of understanding Scripture and understanding God. Is whatever, however God deals with the first time he mentions something, it's probably really, really, really important, so you should pay attention. And maybe study it, right? And so go back and study the first time that, that a sacrifice was made, blood was shed, so something that had not sinned, had, had, its life had to be taken, blood had to be shed so that sin could be covered. Right? So that's the beginning of the Old Testament. Weave that throughout the Old, the Old Testament and the sacrifices. And go read some of the sacrifices. Man, they're crazy, some of the sacrifices. But it always, almost always includes blood. Another sacrifice is the sacrifice of first things. Like why, why do you give in the kingdom? Is it because, you know, God's really desperate and he needs your money? Right? I always like, like, oh, you know, I'm not going to give, because God's got, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can sell them anytime he wants to, right? So is your giving about God getting your money, or is it about you acknowledging where your money came from in the first place? Right? So we know that that's true. That's the law of first mention. So where was the first sacrifice? The truth is, the first sacrifice is mentioned in the last book of the Bible. And it's submerged in this whole thing about the end of time and everything's going to be all final. And there's this momentary mention of something that happened before time began. It's powerful. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb. So this book of life is of the lamb. Who is this lamb? He was slain from the foundation of the world. So other version says before the foundation of the world. Another version says before the creation of the world, right? There's a, there's a, a, a moment in 1 Peter where he talks about this just briefly. He speaks to it. It's not like this, but it's a little bit different, but it, it, it touches something in your heart. This is 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing that you were redeemed with corruptible things, like silver, sorry, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your father. So he's saying there's a value system, and he lists some of the things that are really valued. Silver and gold, still valuable today, right? So he said, these are corruptible things. This is part of this world, and all this is going to pass away, right? You see this, this thing go throughout. Like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But this is what you were redeemed with. But with the precious blood of Christ. So now we've tr- tracked that sacrificial theme. Something innocent gave its life's blood for some, someone who was guilty. And that blood in the Old Testament covered your sin. And Dave did a great job with communion saying, it, Jesus' blood doesn't cover it. It washes it away. It's more powerful. That Old Testament sacrifice was a symbol. This is not the symbol. This is the real deal, right? And so he goes on. He says, um, it's been, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So go back and trace that in through the first things in Scripture, in, especially in Leviticus. Verse 20 is amazing. He said, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So take this in. Next time you go and you sin, let's, let's assume you're a believer this morning. I'm, I, I hope most of you are, especially our elders. That would be super cool, right? <laughs> and the deacons too. <laughs> so let's assume you're a believer. So you bought into, you know, the Old Testament, you know, God's angry with your sin. And so now you, you gave your life to Christ. Jesus' blood has washed away your sin, but only temporarily, because it's really like the blood of the bulls and the goats. And so it only pushes your sin back a little bit until you sin again. And then now your sin was stronger than Jesus' blood. So now you are guilty of your sin again. So now, unless you repent, you shall all like what? See how easy it is to take the Bible out of context and really screw you up, <laughs> right? So, so is your sin more powerful than Jesus? Well, when Jesus came one time, go, go through and read it. Once for all, the Bible said, Jesus laid his life down. His blood was shed once for all time. Hebrews goes after this in a big way. There is no more, there is no more salvation. There is not another salvation than Jesus' blood. So no matter what you think, going back to the Old Testament laws and sacrificing or, you know, the new, our version of it is, I'm going to feel really, really bad for my sin. And because I feel really, really bad, God's going to forgive me. No, no, God only works in blood sacrifice. It's the only way he did it, right? He starts that from the law of first principles in Genesis. And actually, he starts it even before that, before the foundation of times. He just talks about it in the end times. Why? Because in this whole package, all of this is wrapped up in the fact that before you ever sinned the first time, there was a lamb foreordained to be slain, but manifest in these last days for you. So what did Jesus do? Jesus said, there's a body prepared for me, right? Psalms talks about this. Jesus takes it up as a prophecy. There's a body prepared for me, and what I'm doing is I am going to do the will of my Father. He did it perfectly, even though you did it. You tried really hard. You found out you couldn't do it in your own strength. It, you found out that you're actually dependent on the one who created you. So this is interesting. When people get saved, sometimes, you know, you, we used to go door to door and say, if you were to die right now, where would you go? 
So, and all we would talk about is heaven, like, you know, the streets of gold and everything. So we try to take the natural, like gold is really valuable, and up there the streets are, you know, made out of gold. So it's, you know, it's still valuable, but if the streets are made out of gold, imagine how much valuable, more valuable everything else is in heaven. So we'd compare that, and, and, and the, the Bible never talks about that. All, all the Bible talks about heaven, uh, what, what it talks about heaven, it's just where God is. But it turns out God's everywhere all the time because he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's all these attributes that we talked about earlier. And, and so that is, in one sense, is, is kind of a sidelight. So the point behind this is God's like, I, I, I want you. So he, he, he wants something different than what was available to him at the time. So he says, I'm going to create a people. And another passage says, he created them a little lower than the angels. This is Psalms, and it reiterates it in the New Testament. I created you a little lower than the angels, but then I crowned you with majesty from on high. Then he takes that same psalm, and he, and he uses it as a prophecy towards Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, God, the God of all eternity, the God that, that is, is his own supply. He doesn't need anything else. He is self-sustaining, right? He, doesn't, he didn't make us because he, he, he needed love. He is love. He doesn't need us to love us, but he wanted us. So he makes a people, right, lower than the angels. Jesus comes out of heaven and submits himself to time and energy and the natural world, and in it he lives a perfect life. Why? So what he does in this temporary world makes the eternal world available to you. Everything was Jesus was doing was not trying to get you into a place called heaven. It was trying to get you back into a relationship with a father who loves you. Has always loved you before you were ever even made. And then we have the audacity to say this to God. Lord, if you knew what I've done. Now, in light of everything I just said, what a stupid thing to say to God. But I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. Maybe quit doing it. <laughs> then what do you do? If you sin, do you have to ask forgiveness every time you sin? You know, I blew it this week. So if I don't ask forgiveness, my question is always this. What happens if you don't ask forgiveness? Let's say you went on a bender. and You sinned a bunch of sins. Like you like got really, and one of them was, you know, getting blackout drunk and falling. And you're like, I'm like, I lost some time there. What do you need to repent of in the time that you were so drunk you couldn't, you didn't even know what kind of sin you were sinning? What if you missed one of your sins? What if in all the sins that you committed, you left one unrepentant? You, you forgot to ask God to forgive you of that particular sin. What happens now? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus said, from the foundation of time, before you were ever created, before, you ever, before Adam ever sinned, before you ever sinned and confirmed that if you were Adam, you would have done the same thing he did, <laughs> right? Now, now Jesus is saying, before all of that, I was slain before you ever sinned the first time. And then at some point in time, the manifestation of the lamb slain before the foundation of time has now occurred. It was in the past, forever past, eternity past, it's eternity future, but at some point, even in time, it became a part of history. So now, 2,000 years ago, that act was done, and 2,000 years later, you're born, and you think you're special, because you are, <laughs> right? But you think that the rules don't apply to you, 
And you can feel really, really guilty and ashamed and be, you know, let the enemy tell you that you don't have any value or worth because look, you, look at this pattern of sin in my life. And if I really love Jesus, I would quit doing this, right? So the question, and God keeps coming back to this, the question is never about what you do. The question is always about what did he do for you? And then lastly, what are you going to do about what he did for you? Does that make sense? So let me wrap it up with this. Genesis 22, 7, Isaac's going up the mountain with his father. He has, a, he has a question or two at some point. He says, my father, here I am, my son, Abraham said. The fire and the wood are here, said Isaac, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? There's so many memes about this scripture that don't understand God at all. And they just make Isaac out to be, you know, one of the three stooges is basically stupid. And Abraham's like, yeah, for religion's sake, you know, I'm sacrificing you. <laughs> we know the story. He puts him on the altar and he gets ready to, to kill him. And the Bible says in the New Testament that when he was ready to sacrifice Isaac, because the promise God made him was through Isaac, you're going to be the father of, of, of all these nations, right? Kids like the stars in the, in the sand. He said, the New Testament version of it says that because he knew that God had promised him that, that even if he killed Isaac, then the expectation was he will kill him, which is going to be really hard for Isaac. Like, like Abraham's going to like, this is going to hurt you more than it does me, Isaac. And Isaac's like, no, it's not, right? So, so Isaac's now dead, and the promise is dead, except for that's the natural. And Abraham said, you are so amazing, God, that even if I kill him, you will raise him from the dead so that your promises will be true in me. That's powerful, right? That was Abraham's faith. And then this is a picture, of course, because he looks over and, and, and he stopped from killing his son, right? He says, Abraham, Abraham. He has to say it twice because Abraham's super obedient and ready to go, right? And he looks over and he says, behold the lamb. And Greg preached on this not too long ago when he was here, our friend from uh, Northlands. He said, while, while Isaac and Abraham were coming up the mountain, the lamb was coming up the other side of the mountain. They couldn't see it, but God was preparing the sacrifice before the sacrifice was needed. And that's what he did in Jesus for you. Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. In other words, you can argue all you want, but you know better. You know what he did. You've seen it. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. So Jesus, again, going back to Matthew 6, he says, where's your treasure? Where is your treasure? So in Acts, he tells these guys, he said, you think that you're in charge of this world because you took the Son of God and you crucified him. And the Bible says about Jesus that no man could take his life because he's God, right? He said he willingly laid his life down for us. Nobody can take something from God. God only, he decides to give it or not give it. But when we ask the question, what is God's treasure? What's in God's checkbook? The first entry in God's checkbook is in Revelation chapter 13, but it's actually before time began. The first entry is not, it's not red. 
even though it's red. It's not a negative to your account, even though it's a negative to somebody's account. So the first entry in the checkbook of God is a deposit that can never, ever be used up. So when Jesus dies on the cross, I'm closing with this. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, it is finished. And then the Bible says, then he gave up his ghost, his soul, right? So we've shared this before. What does that mean? That meant that the sacrifice that Jesus gave, all of sin from all of mankind from the beginning in Genesis with Adam and all the way throughout to the Roman times. And I don't know if you know about the Romans, but they were really good sinners, right? It's all about power and taking everything. And so they sinned a lot. And even the two, the, you know, the, the, the Roman soldiers down there, Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? So forgiveness was even available for them. So from all of time, all of that current moment, throughout all of the future, all of mankind's sin was put on Jesus in one moment, and it was absorbed, and the sacrifice was greater than the sin. The deposit God put in his checkbook before the foundations of time was greater than anything you were ever going to do wrong. So why do I make such a big deal about this? Because when Jesus said, um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, what he was really saying was, you have to make something your treasure. You have to, if you see the value, like the, 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 you know, the pearl of great price, when he discovers this treasure in a field, he recognizes the value of that being greater than the value of anything he owned or anything else he could own. So he goes and he sells everything he has, gets rid of all the things that up until that moment had been his treasure, and he sells it all so that he can purchase this field and get this treasure. And so what Jesus is saying is, you are going to serve one of two masters. You cannot serve two. So he's challenges and he's saying, don't expect it to happen automatically. Like if I go to church, if I was raised with the right values, I'm going to, nope. He's saying you have to decide to see the value in who he is for you so that you make him the treasure, sell everything you have so that you can have him alone. And then he promises if you do that, not only do you get the treasure that I am, but you get everything that the world is chasing after that they think is going to make them fulfilled and satisfied. So he's saying the challenge isn't that one treasure isn't a treasure. He's just saying that you have to decide that the treasure of who God is and his great love for you, indicated by what he's done through Christ Jesus, that that treasure is worth selling everything else and buying that. Because when you do that, wherever your treasure is, you will find that that will be where your heart is also. And it's not about eternity. It's about right here and right now. Amen? So my challenge to us this morning is, What's your treasure? If you were to look in your checkbook, metaphorically speaking, what would you say, what would your checkbook say is the most valuable thing? Is it your family? Is it your patriotism? Is it the fact that you're a Republican, not one of those evil Democrats? Or if we were a little farther north, those, you're a Democrat, not one of those evil Republicans? Remember the Pharisee, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman. What a horrible thing to say, right? <laughs> but that was classic. So my question simply is, what you say your treasure is, if you're honest, 
may not be what your treasure actually is. Are you willing to see the value? Because it's a choice you have to make. God's like, I have presented the value to you now, but you have to decide, will you make me your treasure? Because if you do, what you'll find is, way before you were ever born, I made you my treasure. And when you get that right and you see him that way, all of a sudden now the the story of the prodigal son coming home makes more sense. The prodigal was so worried about all the money, all the money he spent from his dad's account, like he's gonna, you know, spend it all. And he gets back, and his mindset is, I've wronged my father, but my father is like me, so he's not gonna forgive completely. He's only gonna forgive mostly. He's gonna mostly forgive me. But really what I'm going to be is like a servant, but I can never be a son. And we know the story. He comes home. The father runs to meet him, restores everything to him, throws a big, huge party, right? So he can spend time with his son. (laughs) And then all of a sudden the son realizes, my dad's way richer than I thought he was, right? But more importantly, in all the things that my father has, His number one value isn't all of those things or his estate or even right. His value is me. So he was willing to sacrifice so that he could have me. Do you realize that you are God's treasure? And because of that, can you make him your treasure? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray over this. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that whatever that meeting looked like, Lord, before the foundations of time, Lord, you said, I will go. Lord, you knew implicitly and completely the sacrifice that it would be, and we can't even imagine for, for the God of heaven to become a man. Lord, I mean, we, we try to compare it to us becoming a worm. We've even written songs like that. But Lord, there's the, the, the distance is not great enough to understand what it meant for a, for a God to become a man and to sacrifice himself on our behalf. What great love, God, you have shown and demonstrated that while we were still sinners, you gave yourself up for us. God, thank you. I can never say thanks enough. My worship could never be strong enough, Lord. I could never use words that are great enough to tell you how amazing you are. All I can do, Lord, is just respond to your great love. And so I do that now, and I say, Jesus, I love you. Heavenly Father, you are my treasure. This earth will pass away, Lord, but but you and I will not pass away. And I won't just live forever in eternity, Lord. I can have the relationship with you right here, right now. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation. Only your great love for me in your desire to pour your favor and your kindness out on me. But Lord, I can't come in my own way. I can't have my hand on the world and on the kingdom at the same time. I have to let go of that and grab hold of you and and my relationship with you and everything that I am. So Lord, I choose to do that right now in your name. So Lord, because of that, we have been reconciled to you. Lord, help us to see the value of our brothers who have not yet been reconciled to you. And Lord, to release your great love that has come to us. Lord, to release it through to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have need this morning,
God's for you. We'd love to pray for you. We'll have our team up here to minister to you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week, and we will see you next Sunday.